0: Thank you for listening to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I want to make you aware of a cool new feature that I've added to the podcast website. It's a bookstore. In the bookstore, we sell the books of the authors that we interview, as well as many other valuable resources to help you in your faith journey. We've got items on historical issues within Mormonism that come from a faithful perspective, as well as books and materials to help you in a difficult faith transition. Please check out the website today, mormondiscussionpodcast.org, and click the link bookstore. And now onto what you've Brittany been doing. Brittany Hartley here. Welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thanks, Bill.
0: Awesome, glad to have you on. Uh, you and I have never met face to face, Brittany, but I feel like like we, <laughs> you and I are old friends. Uh, we've talked quite a bit, uh, little messages here or there on Facebook and email once in a while. Uh, you were on the podcast when I first started. This has to be a probably yeah before. three years ago. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. So Awesome. Glad to have you back on. On that episode, you spoke out on feminist issues. You were the first female voice I had on the podcast in the first person speaking to feminism and just really appreciated your, your point of view and your perspective and grateful to have you back on. Why don't you give us uh, maybe a 30-second brief bio for the 14,982 mm-hmm. listeners who have joined since then?
1: Okay. I'm Brittany Hartley. I live in Boise, Idaho, and I went through a faith crisis about four years ago, and um, I was just coming out of it um, on my own and was just really disappointed with the lack of resources and kind of fell upon Bill's podcast. And, you know, we've been friends for the past few years and um, just really fall in love with this community. So here in Boise, I now um, do a lot of interfaith um, work and I do presentations on Mormonism and I um, and I'm an advocate for you know Mormon doctrine versus culture and the things that I believe and the things that I came to know after my faith crisis and uh, like Robert millet was just in Boise and we um, the two of us kind of defended Mormonism to a room of Nazarene professors and I love doing things like that and just kind of um spreading what i believe to be what mormonism is which is much different than uh what i thought it was before my faith crisis
0: so so you and robert millet on the same stage huh
1: yeah it was one of the great honors of my life it was it was really awesome um there's a lot of nazarenes here in idaho and they have a college here as well and uh so i do a lot of work with mormon and nazarene kind of discussions and interfaith discussions cuz there's a lot of um you know miscommunications both ways and not understanding each other's doctrine and I find that to be very fulfilling work.
0: Mhm. Awesome. Awesome. I'm a big fan of Robert Millet as well and and just to hear that you and him are we're working on something together is just incredible. You uh, you ended uh, your bio by talking about what you believe Mormonism to be versus what probably, you know, what the average Latter-day Saint would consider it. and I was just sitting down with my bishop today. And I said the same thing. I said, you know, I think I have, I would have no problem if you would want to have a temple recommend interview with me right now. I think I would pass it hands down, no problem. But, but I've reframed the way in which I understand those questions and how I frame my beliefs around them much differently than the average Mormon. And he seemed, he seemed to very much respect that and understand it. Have you, uh, Mm -hmm. have you been in your own area? Have you been, um, has your view been respected or have you been given some space?
1: Um, you know, there's some people who will, you know disagree with me and think that I'm way off on the deep end and you know you eventually just have you come to a place within your own faith and within your own relationship with God that you're I'm I'm okay with that. Um my family at the beginning of my faith crisis weren't weren't as supportive as maybe I would have liked them to be, but um I think, you know, when you keep communicating then they start to kind of understand where you're coming from and so um it's in a better place now. But yeah, yeah, I would say you know the mormonism that and or how i reframe things is is much more personal much much more genuine and and much different than before my faith crisis and from what i understand of church doctrine that is okay and um so i just you know the people who really don't accept that i just have to you know i just go back to the doctrine and the doctrine tells me hey that's okay
0: Awesome. Awesome. So today we're going to have you address some of these same questions. I don't know if you're aware or not, but I just got done wrapping up an interview with Richard Bushman where I went through these same questions with him, interviewed Adam Miller two nights ago, uh, had the same exact questions for him. And so today we're going to what I'm trying to do is hit all of my former guests with these. And my hope is that for those who are listening and those who are whatever portion of the listenership is in that dark night of the soul, that to hear 10, 12, 15 people who are intelligent, reframe the gospel, and, and show how they understand these questions and these issues, I think will give these listeners a lot of room, and I'm, I'm grateful to have the chance to sit down with you, Brittany, and to tackle this. Let's start off with question number one, which is, what does the phrase, the church is true, mean to you? And and I I've prefaced this with the other two uh, interviewees that I've talked to. Every Sunday, Mormons get up on Fast and Testimony Sunday, and they one after another say, I know the church is true. And I think they often have a certain idea of what that means. What does it mean to you, Brittany?
1: Yeah. Um, before you get into that question, I do just have to say, I really appreciate, uh, you know, that you're giving um, all these lists. I can't wait to hear Adam Miller and um, all these questions um, because when I was in my dark place I just really felt like nobody else, like everybody else believed something different and that nobody else was struggling with the same things that I was. And since, you know, coming in, coming out of my faith crisis and finding a community, you know, it is because you usually in your own ward, there might be one or two people who you know, struggle with the same things that you do, you may or may not know who they are. And so it's really easy to just feel alone. And like, you're the only Mormon who frames things in this way. And so I just, you know, this is just really positive. And I just wish I would have had this when I was going through my face crisis, because all sometimes all you need is just like, yeah, I've been there, I frame it this way. And I've grown so much by listening to your listeners and seeing how they um look at things. And, and it's just great. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, To answer your question, when I get up and bear my testimony, which I do from time to time, I usually don't say the phrase, um, I know that this church is true. It just doesn't fit um, my view that God is working with each of us in every nation, religion, and culture to bring us to a higher plane of morality. We know in Mormonism that God works with all religions. I love that in 1978 it wasn't just a talk. It was a first presidency message that said that the great... Leaders, religious leaders of the world—Muhammad, Confucius, Plato—receive God's light and were given moral truths to enlighten nations. And and I just I love that. You know, Mormonism is supposed to be about gathering truth from all over the world and all this. And um. Knowledge is easy, you know, it can be given. Character is hard. And from my study of world religions, celestial character can be created in any religion or in no religion at all. God is merciful enough that the atonement has the capacity to work within us, even if we call Christ by a different name or believe in no Jesus at all. So back to your question, what it means to me is that This church has been set apart from the rest of the world to be a covenant people. I believe this church has the proper priesthood keys and authority, the prophetic keys necessary to reveal pure doctrine. The phrase, this church is true means to me that the church is setting the proper foundation and priesthood structure that will continue when Christ returns to the earth. Um, from what has been revealed about the millennium, we know that at the beginning there'll be people from every religion who are living at least a terrestrial law, but by the end of the millennial period will be gathered into one church of Christ. So to me, the church is true because the authority and the keys that it carries, not because other churches are false or that this is the only church that will lead to personal salvation or even truth. Um, like in my personal life, I'm a history teacher. I teach history, government, and philosophy. And it's just very important to me that... that um, you know, Mormonism, we're a very small religion when you talk about the whole history of the world. And so I love how Mormon doctrine accounts for all those other people and that God is working with everyone. And so to me, when I say the church is true, I'm talking about the priesthood keys and authority and setting the foundation for the millennium. Um, Not so much that our church has a monopoly on truth and all other churches are not true. I, I just feel like that sometimes we get that message accidentally when we say the church is true. And so it's something that, that I just semantically, I just don't say when I bear my testimony.
0: I love that. And you, you said in there that at the end of the millennium, like all these people will be assimilated into the church of Christ and you, and you, and I know you did it intentionally, you didn't say the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I just today was thinking about this and I often bring it up with people that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is only pertinent to this dispensation, Right, that the Church of Christ is this eternal entity that is different in various dispensations. It may contain and it the gospel.
1: Jews and early Christians, and are called different names. And so we have to kind of broaden our perspective and say, "Hey, God's working with all of us here." What do you mean when you say this church is true? And so yeah, so I I kind of reframe it as a as a covenant thing. You know, we I do believe that we're carrying that covenant that the Jews and the Christians had um, in the Bible. And the priesthood keys and authority, but as far as as truth um, and salvation i just I just am a strong believer that Mormons have no monopoly on that
0: do do you so when we use the word church we 're often referring to the fifteen member fifteen million member entity known as the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. And obviously, Scripture gives us more leeway than that. Do you consciously, when you use the word church, are you thinking bigger? Like, for instance, Book of Mormon says there's two churches only, those who follow Christ and those who don't. Um, Doctrine of Covenants says any who will repent and follow me are of my church. Are you thinking in those terms as well, or is that not something that's yeah. conscious?
1: Yeah. Um, if I, you know, if someone says this church is true and they're talking about this church, the, you know, church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I, in my mind, I'll reframe it as more of a, of a priesthood covenant thing. But when someone says this is the church of God or something like that, then, yeah, I usually am thinking of it, you know, as a bigger picture and, and, uh, you know, St. Augustine wrote a book about the city of God and the city of man and Zion and Babylon and, and the church of Christ and the church of, of the devil. And that really helped me to kind of broaden my perspective here that when we talk about church and the great abominable church, you know, that's not one church. you know, that's not the Catholic church. That's not the whatever church. Um, you know, churches are being built within each person. You know, are you are you following? God and the things that are good in your life? Or are you following the things that you know to be wrong? That's the church of God. You know, that to me are the two churches.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, number two is the Book of Mormon. It's the same idea. Uh, The Book of Mormon is true. Again, people stand up and they say it all the time. And I think if you were to just grab the average member and just say, what do you mean by that? They would say that the Book of Mormon is a, a real book. It's a historical book. It's based on real people, Nephites and Lamanites, on real prophets that lived who wrote down their records and and I don't think most members at least not the average member is really talking about the message in the book just the book it, as a historical work uh your thoughts when you when you hear the phrase the book of mormon is true or when you personally if you say that at all anymore uh what do you mean by that and maybe tell us if you do use that phrase anymore
1: sure um I, I struggled for a long time with the Book of Mormon, and it still to this day is not my favorite if I were to, you know, pick favorites within the canon. Um, I'm a history teacher, and I love the richness of the Old Testament, especially in college. I specialized in scriptural exegesis, which is really learning the symbolism and the levels of scriptural texts, and I love it. You know, I'm grappling with these texts, and, and um, I feel like God's— speaks to me through that process and it's it's just it's it's just a way to read scripture that really speaks to me so not having any cultural insights that i can really point to with the book of mormon is is really difficult for me and it was part of my faith crisis because i can't prove historically that this person named Alma exists and he lived in this place and he did this. And, and, you know, of course all those anachronisms and things like that. And this is his culture and this is what the word means in Greek. You know, I can't do any of that with the Book of Mormon. It's, you know, because we just don't know. Um But since my faith crisis i 've come to better understand the translation process of Joseph Smith, the simple truths of the Book of Mormon that draws closer to christ and and also that there is continuing LDS research on the historicity of the Book of Mormon and i 've come to a place where i 'm comfortable with the idea that i don 't think that there 'll ever be enough evidence for the Book of Mormon to prove to the world historically that this is true here 's the people here 's the ruins, here it is. But I've also looked at the evidence against the Book of Mormon and I don't think that there'll ever be enough solid evidence to disprove it. And I guess as a historian, like that, that puts me in not a fun place that I like to be in, but I just have to accept that God for whatever reason wants it that way because if he wanted archaeologists to discover the ruins and records and confirm that the Book of Mormon stories were true, then, then it would happen. So, um, Still today, it's my, it's my least favorite. I really like to wrestle with text a little bit more, but I do believe that the Book of Mormon is true because I don't think that Joseph Smith wrote it in the sense that he, um, you know, just sat down and I'm going to write a cool story. Um, I do think that somehow the process of, you know, the words and the, In the hat or through in his head or whatever, you know, had to be processed through his brain. So I do think that he has a little bit of his own stamp on it. Um, like, you know, all revelation does when it, when it gets to us. Um, but I do believe that it's true because it believes because it brings me closer to Christ and it provides the simplicity of doctrine that helps us refine and provide context. To the doctrine of the rest of our canon. Without it, certainly our doctrine would be incomplete because without the Book of Mormon, it would be difficult to interpret the Bible in the way that God intended. So the Book of Mormon is true because spiritually and intellectually, I believe that it is not the work of just Joseph Smith, that it was inspired by God to bring men unto Christ and to him and that it was significant enough to our doctrine that, it, you know, it needed to be scriptural canon.
0: Cool, cool. Richard Bushman, Said essentially the same thing. He said it's a puzzle. He said there's evidence on both sides. He said there's a lot of there's a lot of 19th century um, ideas, phraseology, theology in the Book of Mormon. But he says there's also some ancient things in there, and and Mm -hmm. he he also wrestles with it. It's really tough. Um, Does historicity does it does it still weigh on you? I mean, is it something where you still get up and have thoughts through the day that say I really need to find out if the Book of Mormon is true, or have you just kind of come to grips? That this is something that's just never going to have a clear answer. You've just kind of set it off to the side.
1: To me, I'm, I mean, it took me a couple years, but it's, it's, it's still on my shelf for me, but it's, it's not as uncomfortable as it used to be. And, um, I, I'm, especially with the translation process, I'm really okay with the idea that Yes, there's some ancient things that I really think that Joseph Smith, like, there's no way he could have known. Um, You know, there's some evidences there that, you know, are really interesting to look at. And then there's some things that seem to kind of have his stamp on it. And the more that I look at human nature and scripture in general and, you know, my own writings when I feel inspired to write in my journal or whatever, um, I, I'm really okay with that because, you know, scripture in general, none of us human beings perfectly capture that pure inspiration. You know, there's times in the scriptures where where something really pure and, um, you know, spiritual happened and they'll say, you know what, we can't record this. There are no words to describe this. And Joseph Smith struggled a lot with you know especially when he had you know revelations that were recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants with you know how to put things into words and and the more I understand human nature and and the nature of scripture and psychology and how we work, um I'm more okay with the idea that, yes, there are some things that clearly to me are of God and are not Joseph Smith, but there's some things that in there that I think. You know, his own brain and his own upbringing and beliefs—you know—they get filtered through, and I, I just think that that happens because we're human, and and you know, no man is an island, kind of stuff. So, um, so for now, it's it's off to the side, and uh, and it's in a place where it doesn't bother me. I'll still continue to look at historical stuff on both sides, um, just because I just because I can't know for sure either way doesn't mean I don't like to keep trying. Um, but for now I'm in a good place with it. And I just, I just really believe that there was a purpose that God kind of left the historicity a little bit more gray and really wanted that simplicity of doctrine. And that's what we needed to complete our canon. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with that place now.
0: Excellent. Excellent. The, I want to ask you what I find to be the toughest question for me as I go through these. We're actually contemplating, um, a friend of mine, uh, asking me these same questions at the very end once I get all these interviews done.
2: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to to do that, but this question's the toughest one for me because I think it would take me 45 minutes to clearly express that, uh, the answer to this one. But the role of a prophet, the office of a prophet, Thomas S. Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and all those who who came before him who held that sacred office, most members understand that word to mean a person who speaks face-to-face with God. Uh, Brittany Hartley, how is your view different? What is the role of profit to you? Or maybe it isn't different, but if it is, maybe share with us how you kind of put that one together.
1: Sure. <clears throat> uh, I used to be bothered, um at the beginning of my faith crisis especially by all the things that prophets have done that are unprofit-like. And at first glance, it is really hard to believe Brigham Young was a prophet. You know, there are some days where you read his stuff and it is hard to get to that place because he's the kind of guy who just had a weird opinion about everything. He's also, you know, a little bit racist and seems to be a little bit sexist, though, to be fair, not unusually so for his time. Um But now understanding more about how God works through men, I... I like the idea that profit have made mistakes and I've, and I've come to terms with this a little bit and not just little mistakes, but seemingly pretty big ones, doctrinal mistakes. Um, Some that are seem to be pretty significant doctrinal mistakes. And when I was young women's president a couple of years ago, I remember brief times where the spirit did speak to me in that pure indirect way. I acted on the, on the impression and I was able to do something quite larger than me. You know, because of my calling. And literally the next day I would do something incredibly, incredibly stupid or rude or bad in one way or the other. And I would hate for someone to look at my life and say, there's no way that Brittany was led by the spirit or spoke with God because look at this thing that she did or this thing that she struggles with or this demon that she has or this thing that she believes in that's wrong. So I think at the end of the day, it takes a lot of spiritual maturity within yourself to say, yeah, I probably have a lot of opinions that are not correct. And I certainly have my own demons. But God has spoken to me and has worked through me to do things that I couldn't do on my own. And if I say that about myself, I have to allow that prophets are no different. And that's a good thing. That gives me hope. That means that God apparently works with us even when we sin, even when we are wrong, even when we are holding on to opinions that God knows are false. Um he apparently still is reaching out to us and working with us and trying to take us from point A to point B and point B to point C. Um, And that means that there's hope for all of us. So um, I used to be just really, really bothered by, you know, all the stuff that you can read about um, prophets and, and the doctrine that they believe in that I may differ on, but now I'm in a place and I think it just took a little bit more spiritual maturity to, be able to say um, that prophets are no different. They're, they're just like me. They have an incredibly heavy mantle that I don't envy. Um, and they hold, they have a the keys of the kingdom and they are the only one who can speak for the church as a matter of stewardship. But as far as just a person, you know, he's just like me and, um, and that he can be wrong and I'm okay with that. And I think that, um, I feel like after my faith crisis, I'm closer to God and the Holy Ghost, that if the prophet were to say something that I didn't feel right about, it wouldn't throw me off the deep end anymore. It used to. Um, This prophet speaks for the church, and they are men of their own time. They make mistakes. They have doctrinal opinions that are wrong. Um, But if we are doing our part, which is listening to the Holy Ghost, I feel like those problems can be rectified. Um, I listen to the prophet. I sustain him, but I also believe that he's a man. So with every urging and opinion, I seek the Holy Ghost. And if I feel like there's any problems with church leadership that I'm struggling with, um, I think those problems can be solved if we as a people were more dependent on the Holy Ghost personally. And I was too dependent on um, kind of the authority. And then after my faith crisis. And this is common, I think, with all people who go through a faith crisis, you become much more dependent on your personal relationship with God and the Holy Ghost. And, um, and so that kind of allows you to be inspired, but also to give a place where I'm allowing that the prophet can make mistakes too. And that's not going to throw me um, off the deep end anymore
0: so you talked about having these experiences where where god spoke to you um, and i'm just making the assumption you're not talking not, about you're not talking yeah. about like like face to no. face conversations so then i would want to ask you in terms of the prophet of the church i mean your thoughts i mean do you think these guys speak face to face with god or in that literal he's in the room you know flowing white hair and bright right. light Or do you think it's more like you and me where they're just doing the best they can, they feel inspiration, they hope that by all 15 of them being unified and inspired that the decisions are gonna be, uh, greater than if just one of them was doing something on their own? I mean, do you, how do you make sense of all that?
1: I, I definitely lean on the side that, um, that not every prophet has, has seen God or or Christ, but I could easily be wrong. You know, perhaps meeting face to face is something that happens, you know, in the Holy of Holies room in the temple. And that's something that is part of that calling. Um, but my guess is that even prophets have different spiritual gifts and per- perhaps the gift of seeing God and angels are only given to some. That makes sense to me. Um, there are holy people who don't see angels in the temple and some who do. So my guess is that prophets are the same way and that each has a different spiritual gift and each person, each person individually, you know, we reach God and we talk to God in a different way. My husband, um, is not as scriptural as I am. And he talks, he has spiritual experiences that are much different than mine. And my guess is that if you took all the prophets, that they would have their own spiritual gifts and that they're just like you and me, and they speak to God in their own way. And then they interpret it, you know, through their own life experiences. And they're just figuring stuff out just like us. And that, that makes sense to me.
0: That's really good, and I appreciate that. I think the listeners, as they, they hear that answer, are really going to be helped by that one. Thank you. Um, scripture in general, I know that in the last three, four, or five years, I've really had to make some major adjustments in how literal or figurative I took different stories of the Old Testament, and even New Testament, or even Book of Mormon, for that matter. Um, where are you at in terms of how you fall on the scale of figurative versus literal? Uh, maybe start us off with that, and then I'll kind of plug away from there.
1: Um, so I definitely think that the scriptures are more figurative than literal. And that doesn't mean that I think that viewing the scriptures as literal is wrong. There's plenty to learn by taking a story literally. And I, I think that there's enough scripture that if you take it literally and that's that's how the scriptures speak to you, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. Um, but for me personally, especially with, um, you know, really learning in, in college how to really grapple with scripture um i i really get a lot more when it's figurative so my favorite example is a lot of times in church when we're reading um you know the parables of jesus the first the first verse often gives us you know the The figurative story, you know, what we're, what we're going for and we just read right over it. So if we're reading the good Samaritan story, for example, the first verse says something like a man is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and is stripped of his garments and left for dead. And we just skip right over it. And that, you know, to me, if you look at that scripture just spiritually, that this is a spirit, not a body, that this is a spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you're going from Jerusalem, the city of the covenant to Jericho, what does that mean? Well, it means this is, this is a member, someone in the covenant who went from the covenant and is making some poor choices going to Jericho spiritually. Stripped of his garments, what does that mean spiritually? that means that this was this was a member who had had his endowments he had his spiritual garments he lost them and he was left for dead. He was left on the side of the road, spiritually dead and you know you know the priests go by and you know that just means you know the law can't save you. a Levite goes by the priesthood can't save you, and then of course we know the rest of the story Christ comes, finds up the wounds, takes him to the church to be taken care of and and so you know, literally, it's not a bad story. Be a good person. Love your neighbor. Which one, you know, the original question that Christ asked, which one is the one who loved his neighbor? But, but when you take a, it apart figuratively, gosh, this story has a lot more meaning to me, you know, because now, now it's talking about someone like me who, you know, raised in the church and, and left and left on the side of the road spiritually dead. And so for me, in order to make the scriptures personal, have it apply to me personally. And also in order to fit the scriptures together into one great whole, um, it makes a lot more sense to me that the scriptures are figurative, especially in the old Testament where they were much more familiar with how to write symbolically. And uh, I think that was probably the only way for, for the biblical stories to really be passed down to our generation is to kind of hide them within these literal stories and, And you know, allow us to try to seek it and find those hidden truths that are, that are in there.
0: You just unlayered a parable in a way that I've never heard before. I hope you don't mind. I'm definitely plagiarizing that for my next (laughs) sacrament talk. So, if
1: you look at all the parables they do the same thing before the great before the um sermon on the mount it says that christ walks up the mountain and his disciples follow him this wasn't the the sermon on the mount which we love this higher law um wasn't given to one of these groups where christ came down from the mountain and he spoke to one of these groups he we skip the first verse always but he walks up the mountain and his disciples follow him and it's the one who followed who got to hear this beautiful sermon on the mount higher law um, but it's the ones who followed him up the mountain that were able to hear that, but we skip a lot of the time those first verses when we're when we're in church and we kind of take the story a little bit more literally but a lot of times how to frame it spiritually is in those first couple verses and then it will completely um you know scriptures are like an onion you can just completely peel back layer after layer and and find some really really cool things and and uh, not only do I find great value in that personally but but these are also people in a culture much different than mine. And so when when I'm trying to, as it says in the temple, I'm trying to gather all truth into one great whole. And for me personally, I haven't found a way to do that without taking the scriptures figuratively, because if I'm taking it literally You know, it's this rule in this culture and it's this rule in this culture and people are doing this. And then there's the apparently, you know, there's a flood and it rains for 40 days and it covers the earth. And I just can't make it all fit and make sense to me unless it's unless it's unless it has that figurative element. And once I go to that figurative element, I feel like the, the doctrine is kind of separating from. From the story, what actually happened or the culture or the people that, you know, these lives that are very different than mine. But the doctrine then is the is the truth that that, um, you know, that I can gather into one great whole.
0: I think you just compelled me to have to pick up my New Testament again and read all of the uh... The sayings of Jesus again, because now you've put a whole new light on it. I appreciate that. Uh, and I love this parable that you, I mean, I'm going back to it, and, and not that I want to spend a lot of time here, but this idea, as you said, that the priest comes, and so it's not uh, it's not the priesthood, it's not the law, it's Christ. Just incredible. Is this something you kind of came up with on your own, or is this something you kind of picked up somewhere else, or, or where did you come across that?
1: Um, I, I think that specific one, I think we worked with a little bit um, just during my training with 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 scripture but you can do it with almost any parable um in something that if you you know you're really looking to get the most out of scriptural parables to me this these are people and especially Christ who's trying to get these messages in the scriptures um you know they know how to speak symbolically and so <clears throat> um when you're studying the New Testament I find it really helpful there's there's four layers of scripture and you can go um you know you can just look up Uh, scriptural exegesis and it and you can look at scriptures on each layer and it will kind of reveal a different story as you go um you know zion is a place but it's also a spiritual thing but it's also a future thing and you know just a word like zion if you take what zion means on each level you know it can change a story um multiple times and and to me, that's, that's what makes the scriptures fun. The scriptures were never meant to be a bedtime story that we're give, that we're reading to ourselves before we go to bed at night. The scriptures were always meant to be something that we're wrestling with and grappling with. And slowly through that process, God will speak to us and God will reveal things that are just us. Um, and I've had, so some of these things, you know, you learn just as you're studying, but some of the things have been revealed to me just just because I was reading. There's a scripture in Romans. I was fighting with my husband because he was being a total jerk, and there was a scripture. As all husbands are, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and Paul uh, is writing, and he's writing to the the churches are fighting, so he's writing to him, and he says, you know, you need to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. And when I read that scripture, the Spirit spoke to me and, he, and told me directly this scripture. You know, it's talking about your marriage here. Okay, you're in a little spat right now, but you need to accept your husband as Christ has accepted you. And boom, I was totally humbled. That scripture, which was about, you know, some dissents among the churches, all of a sudden had meaning for me right then in my life. And the scriptures have that power, but we have to treat it like that in order to get there. And to me, that means that you have to take the scriptures as figurative. You have to study And so some things I learned through books and some things I learned through the spirit and through that um, process is how God can can speak to us and reveal, you know, these little nuggets of of inspiration for our personal lives.
0: And that's how we live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Beautiful. The. Let's you know. Let's make the assumption. Both you and I are, are believers, although we obviously reconstructed our faith in ways that would be different from the general Latter Day Saint population. But making the assumption to the listener that you know the church is true, it is what it claims to be, at least on some level. And realizing, as you talked about earlier, as you were kind of in the early stages of your faith crisis, it was tough. And and knowing a little bit of your story and. And knowing others who have gone through the similar things, including myself, it, it's one of these things that early on, you just feel like everything's falling apart. You're trying to put it back together. Every time you learn some new piece of information, it just causes everything to crumble again and you start all over. Um, you talked about how you've become better equipped, better able to manage that shift. Maybe speak about that for a moment in terms of the shift that you've made and what makes it easier, perhaps, or how you... How you handle when you come across something now that is different than what you thought it was before?
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, at the beginning of my faith crisis, you know, every little thing can just can just throw you off the deep end. You know, you're looking at the prophets and they're not who you thought they were, and you're looking at the history, you know, the history of the church and it's not what you thought thought it was, and you're looking at the Joseph Smith story that you've been taught and it's not what you thought it was. And, and it's hard. And, you know, especially when you're being, being met, you know, you go to church and at first you're, you just want answers. Like, you're just struggling. Like, you know, you're getting all these different narratives and you don't, you know, and there's problems with the way that the manual is saying something, you know, you're just feeling like it's not true. And then you feel you're betrayed and being lied to. And it's just a big mess. Right. And so over time, I just began to have better tools for how to deal with something. And it, it and it, again, it just goes back to that spiritual maturity of being able to say, you know, is this, is this an error of a person? Is this something that I don't know either way and I just have to put it on the shelf? Um, is this a bigger church problem? And if so, you know, how do I feel about it? And, and what helped me was kind of think when we talk about the body of Christ, we talk about the church. We're kind of talking when, when we put ourselves as one body, it's almost like a person. And so, you know, in the beginning of our church, our one person, our body, our body of Christ, you know, we had some spiritual experiences, but then, you know, at the beginning of our, of our history, we have some racism, we have some sexism, not just one person, but as a body, um, as, as kind of one collective unit. And what I see and what gives me hope you know, when I when I see problems is that I see, you know, when we talk about our one body of of Christ in the church um, that we're getting better, I see growth, I see errors. Um, I s but I see it's almost like looking at the history of a person, you know, you have a spiritual experience, you're trying to figure things out, you get things wrong, you have some false notions that you have to figure out and it gets better and it gets better and it gets better. So what, what gives me hope is that, um, that the people in the church leadership, whatever, they're just like me and I have to give them that space where they're able to be wrong and make mistakes. And as a body, I have to give us, you know, there's some things that we're a young church and we have been naive about things or we've been wrong about things and, you know, we have to fix it. And as a body, we have to get better. And those things take time and those things can be painful. So to me, I came to the personal conclusion that the church was not meaning to be duplicitous in the sense that it's a conspiracy theory and they're just trying to take my tithing money and whatever. In, in history books, it doesn't talk about, Thomas Jefferson fathering children with black slaves or Martin Luther King being a womanizer or the complexity and nuance of every story. Histories are difficult to write. And I just kind of accepted as human nature that if the purpose of church manuals was to bring people to Christ, the church narrative was created as simple as possible, glossing over anything that would cause any trouble. You know, they weren't historians at the beginning. I don't think that they were trying to be manipulative. Um, I think for the most part, they were just lay members trying to be bring people to Christ. And and so if I had to put any blame on the church, it would be that in about the past five years, at least for me, I noticed that there were a lot of honest members who were asking questions and had nowhere to go online that was safe and productive and were lost, left the church. And to be honest, I can't, I don't fully blame them. That in-between time between the critics on the Internet controlling the information about the church and the release of the essays and podcasts like this and fair and all that was much too long. And in that time, we lost a lot of members that didn't need to be lost. We pushed them out ourselves. And I know many of these people, and they're still good people, who continue to seek God without the shame and the angst that Mormonism brought them. So my hope is that there was a purpose in the church going through this struggle. Perhaps this was a trial for the church as a whole— That is helping us take things to the next level. We're already seeing the results with the essays, changes for women, the church history center, shutting down and rebooting the changes in the manuals, changes with the youth. The church dialogue is changing. It's different now than it was 10 years ago. And perhaps these are the blessings that have come through really this trial period for the church. When it comes to historicity that we needed to go through kind of as a body and and go past to get, to be able to go to the next level. Um, the unfortunate thing is that I really believe that the people that were lost along the way didn't need to be lost, and we can't judge them. They were searching for the truth, and sometimes even me were met with judgment and no answers. And I went through my his faith crisis about three or four years ago, and even then, I was a member my whole life, trained in history, trained in philosophy at BYU Idaho, and I spent months searching, praying, digging, and I felt like I was the only one. And it didn't have to be that way, you know? So I think we're getting better. And I think that by the time my son grows up in the church, that we won't, um, we'll have, you know, the saving message of the gospel that people are drawn to, but also a much more accurate storyline. And there'll be a lot more tools and there'll be, you know, safe place to discuss some of these historical issues. Um, but I, I just think that, that we needed to, as a body of Christ, this was a trial period for us that we had to all together kind of, that we're going through right now in order to get to the next level.
0: Do you, do you still today, I mean, you, you obviously have gotten to a place where things, things are much smoother. There's not as much turbulence in, in where you're at in your journey, but do you still find that there's times where information or something someone says still rocks you? And, and do you still have those moments?
1: Yeah, it's really easy um if I'm if I'm not kind of on top of myself, it it's really easy to go to church and say, "Well, that's not true. Well, that's not true. Well, that's not true. Well, that's not true." And then literally it was 3 hours of like, "I don't believe any of that." And uh what am I doing in this church? And that was an extremely negative experience. And and for me, it was just a matter of being in a church you know, it's, it's not, I'm not going to church because it's a perfect place and it's going to give me all this pure doctrine. Church is the place that we go to practice. I'm practicing what it's like to be in a religious community. And there are blessing and there are blessings and there are experiences in that community that I don't get anywhere else. You know, it's really easy just to say, I'm done with this. This is a mess. This is negative. I'm just going to go do my own spiritual thing. And while I respect that, I, I think that that's I think that that's just that's just a little bit copping out. You know, if if we want to build this Zion society, it's we're a young church. We got some things we got to work through as a body. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be messy. Um but it's only by, you know, going and serving and trying and I give when I go to Sunday school, I am not going anymore because I think that the teacher's gonna, you know, just enlighten me with all this stuff that I've never heard before. I go because I'm serving that person. I'm giving that person the opportunity to teach and learn and learn by the spirit and I'll share my experiences or whatever. And so just reframing what church is supposed to be really helped me to enjoy more when I go to church and not be so rocked by other people's opinions and beliefs about doctrine that, that I don't agree with.
0: Yeah, as you talk about the the growth that the church has to go through it being a young church and, and essentially asking for people to hang around and, and to be part of it, it, it reminds me of President Uchtdorf when he talks about the restoration being ongoing. And I think he really – I don't know that everybody picked up on that, but I think – to to people like you and me, that's what he's speaking to is this idea that, hey, forgive us our shortcomings, we're in our baby stages of this, we're just learning how to walk and and we've got a ways to go.
1: Yeah, and there's times where the church as a whole, we act emotionally or we act irresponsibly or we act illogically, and, and when we grow, you have to kind of stay in the community, unfortunately, in order to... In order to watch it grow and become what it what it's supposed to be and what I think that it eventually could be, so I stick with it even through those hard days, um, because I believe that it takes all of us to to grow the body of Christ into into the church that Christ wants it to be before He returns, and that's going to take growth and that's going to hurt. But and I think that the past ten years we definitely went through kind of a hurting phase in order to learn some things that we needed to learn.
0: Yeah, in some ways I think, uh, that our generation, you, me, and maybe the, the, those who are 10 or 20 years older than us are really bearing the brunt of this, uh, of this growth where I think this is that stage that just almost kind of like a kid going through puberty and teenage years to become an adult. Uh, we're in that awkward stage where we're trying to kind of figure ourselves out. Uh, and it, it is, and it's painful for a lot of people, but hopefully as you point out your kids and my kids will, will grow up in a church that gives a lot more space for differences and a lot more leeway when it doesn't absolutely know for certain what ground it should hold.
1: And every time there's that little change where, where I feel like I was already there, but the church, you know, changed like for the youth. I, I've been teaching the youth for a long time and I've never used the manual. I, I, it's not something. And not, not to say that I spout my own stuff, but, um, it's not, it's just not a way of teaching that, that really helped me to relate to the youth. And so when I saw that that was changing, you know, just little things like that will just be like, Hey, all right. It's tough, but I think we're going in the right direction. And I think that that's what you have to focus on on those hard days is that the church was never supposed to be perfect. We're supposed to be working to build Zion. And, and there's going to be times where where it's going to get ugly when we're doing that. But but the end goal is is, to me, something that's valuable.
0: Amen. So as we're talking about these kinds of changes and being around for them, you and I, when we talked the first time we talked about feminism, this is a, this is a question that isn't on the, the list that I've sent out to everybody, but I want to ask you, a lot of changes have happened in the last year or two. We've got um, Sisters Praying in General Conference. We've got the female members of Ward Council being specifically noted as now welcoming their input for, let's say, talks and sacrament meeting as the bishopric plans it. We've got uh, church leaders, uh, primary general primary president, Relief Society president, uh, young women's president, being invited into leadership meetings and invited into the councils that used to be all male. And and there's other ones too. Amidst all these changes, uh, Brittany, your thoughts on feminism, where it is within Mormonism right now, and, and what you make of all the change that's going on?
1: yeah every every time that there's a new change um to me i just i give a little hallelujah and i i love it um if i wa if if I wasn't seeing those tiny little and they're tiny some of them are just really small little things that really should have been there a long time ago um but every time I see a little one um it makes me feel like we're moving in the right direction and that um what I think eventually is um that we don't fully know what what the power of women in the church will look like. I don't think that anybody fully knows. We have hints, and yes, I think that, you know, how Joseph Smith treated the Relief Society is definitely a good indicator. I would like to see women go back to the kind of power that they had, um, you know, under Joseph Smith because, you know, it seems like since Joseph Smith, you know, we went backwards and now we have to go back. Um But I don't think that anybody, you know, ordained women or anybody truly fully knows the full potential of what women acting with priesthood power really truly looks like in the church and what it's supposed to look like. And so I just for now, I have my own I have my own beliefs and I have my own opinions. But for now, all I know is that it's just got to keep moving forward. It's just got to keep going. And it's going to take time for the women to come to terms with that. It's going to t- take time for the men to come to terms with that. And over time, I think that, you know, the doctrine will develop and revelation will come and changes will happen. And um, as long as I just keep seeing that, then I'm on board. Um, it doesn't have to be for me. It's not perfect now, but I no longer have the expectation that as a woman, you know, I need this, I need this church to treat me perfectly right now or treat me the way that Joseph Smith treated women back, back then. I just think that that's an unfair standard. You know, we went backwards a little bit, um, because, you know, even just women voting, you know, those things take time. And so for now, you know, um, I don't think that we're at where women could be. And I'm just, I just want to be part of the conversation of, trying to figure out with everybody else in the church, not just me, with everybody else, what is the real potential of womanhood acting in the priesthood in the church? And that's just a question that all of us are going to have to grapple with. And the more we do, the more God will open that window for us and allow us to get there.
0: Gotcha. Good, good. I uh, I want to ask another issue, which is the LGBT issue. And obviously, as you know, this is a big one to me. I've done several episodes uh, around this issue. And, and to the point where some listeners have even wrote me in and said, hey, Bill, you, you talk about this thing too much. Um, but it's something I'm passionate about. And I see, and as you know, too, I mean, I'm obviously a big ally to the feminist issue as well. But I see the LGBT issue as there's more serious harm done At times with how we interact with this issue and with our gay brothers and sisters, the LGBT issue, and I want to be sensitive here, but the message that we put out as a church at present is that our gay brothers and sisters, we really need you to be something other than what you are. And while we respect and now come to terms with the idea that you being gay is not a choice, we're still acting asking you not to be gay. We're asking you not to act on it, not to not to allow that part of who you are to be essentially publicly present in your life. And we've heard of suicides. We've heard of depression. We've heard of homelessness. We've heard of all those ills and, and dangerous, I think consequences and side effects of how we treat this issue. Your personal thoughts on where we're at and if, if we are where we need to be, or is this very similar to the feminist issue? Do you see a lot of room for growth here? What, what are your personal thoughts on this issue? And, and if it's, if I'm, crossing the line and asking this one, I'll just take it out.
1: Nope, you're fine. So I have a brother who is gay. And so this is an issue that is very personal to me and that I spend a lot of time thinking and researching about. Um, And he is an active member of the church and like any gay youth in the church, he struggled with hating himself. He was suicidal. He lived in dishonesty for years and years. He was one of those kids who was blessed with a super strong spirit. He's a spiritual giant. He would bear these beautiful testimonies very early in life, was sensitive to the spirit. And I certainly believe that he was born gay. This wasn't a cultural thing or a thing for attention. Um, he would love not to have homosexual tendencies. He went on a mission. He always had a strong testimony and then on his mission, kind of the self-deception crumbled and he came out to us on his Christmas phone call home, which was an interesting Christmas for us. <coughs> um, and so while I was always interested in this issue, it's, it's obviously easier to care about it when it has a face and it's not so abstract. Um, so like many of your listeners, um, I believe that prof- uh, supporting Prop 8 was a mistake. It certainly had a lot of unexpected negative consequences, and I don't think we'll ever do something like that again. Ultimately, as a church, um, we have to separate what is right and constitutional for the country and what is eternal truth. Because I think that we acted emotionally instead of rationally when it came down, you know, about gay marriage at the beginning. If we truly believe that people have a right to choose, right, that people have their agency, and that a pers- a gay person outside the church, would be better morally in a committed relationship that that is better than you know just having sex with anyone and that people can be born gay it is very very hard with those things in place to argue against gay civil marriage for me I don't think that there'll ever be homosexual unions in the temple there's no doctrine that I see to support that um, and I believe that one man and one woman is certainly ideal but but Mormons believe that ordinances can be given and that um, bodies will be perfected in the next life. So shouldn't we be caring more about the person and the relationship? And I think it, it takes knowing a gay person outside the church to really challenge your views. I know, um, I, I know a few who are better people than me in deeply committed relationships. They were born gay. They don't know any different. According to Mormon doctrine, is it at least possible that they could have a celestial heart? And that in the next life, they could receive ordinances binding them to the human family and be taught the truth concerning eternal relationships. It, To me, it's at least possible. So, you know, a member might say, oh, but the Old Testament condemns the sins of Sodom. But morally, we have to separate the difference between rampant homosexual sex, which was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and being a good person, being bored gay, and being in a committed relationship. Morally, those have to be two different things. And so um, my prediction is that gay civil marriage will move forward. It's, it already is. And that the church eventually, through its silence and lack of fi- fighting, will eventually support it. And that we'll be better in the future about separating what we feel to be religious beliefs about the nature of eternal relationships and what we feel to be right for people, not of our faith. We live in America and you can't believe that God prepared this land for religious freedom while also believing that we must, through our political influence, you know, force others to believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. There's a lady who, you know, I saw someone say, wow, this is a courageous lady. She wouldn't give marriage licenses to gay couples and she went to jail or whatever. And there's all kinds of conservatives who applaud this courage. But if it was a Muslim saying, I'm not giving you a driver's license because you're a woman, we would say, hey, buddy, this is America. So to me, you know, not too long ago, we petitioned the government to allow us to practice an unform, unusual form of marriage based on our beliefs. We believe, we practiced polygamy even when it was illegal based on our own consciences so religiously emotionally rationally i can't go to a place where i can say that gay civil marriage is wrong and by saying it was wrong i think i think that really was the thing that turned people off of the church and caused people to leave the church um because to me it just doesn't make sense so i went to my stake president I told him that this is what I feel about gay marriage. This was maybe six months ago. I'm very vocal about civil gay marriage being the right thing to do. I half expected to lose my recommend over it because I was supporting, you know, some people take that temple question of supporting groups who are against the church. Some people put, you know, gay rights in that group. Um, but I had to be honest and I kept my recommend, but, um, you know, he kind of understood where I was at, but, but, uh, To me, if we can get to a place where we can separate what's right for other people and gay civil marriage and people who are born gay and don't know any different and loving those people. And if we allow room for that while also holding on to our beliefs, I think that once we figure that out as a church, we'll be in a lot healthier of a place where we're able to love gay people in the church, gay people out of the church, gay people in relationships in the church, out of, you know, in relationships out of the church um but to say that everybody, you know, you can't be married, you can't be have, you know, marriage unless it's one man and one woman to me that goes against our own history and that just that just doesn't make sense to me and I think it didn't make sense to a lot of people and it really just turned people off so um so for now, you know, I just I just hope that we figure out that difference and really think rationally about what we're doing when we say when we vote, you know, against prop 8 and things like that. What are you know, what are we really saying doctrinally to people who who are not of our faith? And when I look at it, we're you know, we have a lot of false logic in there and things that don't make sense and don't make sense to our doctrine and we really have to hash that out. Um, or else we're just gonna keep losing people until we do because we 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 haven't been very um, kind to our gay brothers and sisters, my brother included.
0: Um again I'll I'll take this one out if we don't feel this is appropriate, but I want to ask just because you said you've got a brother who's gay. um, Is he, is he finding enough space to maintain his relationship with the church or does, or do you get the impression? And again, this may just be too personal. So we'll just take it out. Do you get the impression that he feels like he's being pushed away or do you mind sharing on that? Or is that is that too much? No,
1: that's fine. Um, So he, he, not all people are, you know, everybody has different spiritual gifts. He was blessed to have just the most amazing, strong faith. And so his issue is more not, not about the church, cause he, he just, he has such a strong faith that he was really, to me, I've seen his whole life, so it's a gift. He was born with it. To me, his struggle will always be, you know, finding his place in the church. Not, not, not that the church is wrong or, or right or wrong or whatever he believes that it's, that the church is true, but, but, um, he does struggle finding, finding where's, where's my place here. And, and that's hard. It's hard to not have an answer for that question for him. So for now he's, um, he's in college. He's, he does his best and we, his family and probably himself, we don't know if he'll marry or not right now. He, um, tries his best to, um, I guess be heterosexual in a sense. And he goes out on dates and he's, you know, he's open about it, you know, but, um, we, he doesn't know, nor do I know fully what, what his place is. And some people say to me, well, how can you keep going to church? Because how can you, you know, you have this brother, he doesn't know if he will ever be able to. Some men are, some men aren't able to marry. And you know, some men are able to, um, love their wife in such a pure way that they're able to have a good relationship have sex and they just say, yeah, I have these sexual you know impulses the other way but but you know I have this higher love with my wife and I think that's great. I hope that for my brother, but not I don't think all men are able to do that so I don't know if he'll get married in the temple or not um and so some will say, you know how can you keep doing this and to me, you know how is that? it's hard and it sucks and it's hard for me to watch, but you know, how is that any different than a woman in the church who's born and she, she's not able to have children and over and over and over in Relief Society, all we talk about is our children and the divine role of womanhood and motherhood. And, you know, I have fertility issues. And so for, for seven years, you know, I'm not able to have children and, I really struggled with what is my place in this family church when it's just me, how can I be a woman if I'm not a mother? And, and ultimately, you know, is his, is his struggle so much different than that? I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that, you know, we have these pure spirits and then we're born into these bodies that, you know, we're all messed up. Our minds are messed up. Our bodies are messed up. and, and, I think that it makes sense then that our sexual drives aren't always or, you know, our sex impulses aren't always ideal either. And to me, that makes sense. And that's hard. That's hard to say. That's hard, you know, for my brother. But to me, he's fighting a battle that is holy and it's his fight. And and I think that we all have to kind of let go of the ideal and say, you know, this is what I've been given and I'm going to do the best with what I've given. And I think that, that that, there's a lot of purity and holiness in that, no matter what your struggle is.
0: Perhaps none of us, in fact it's, I think it's just a fact, none of us have the ideal normality to ourselves. We're all, we're all messed up. Elder Holland in a talk once, and I don't know where he got it from, but he spoke of a broken and fragmented language that we essentially as human beings are picking up on the language of God. And I think that's because we are broken and we are fragmented. And and that's what causes us to not be perfect filters for taking in the divine. I really love that, Britt, and and appreciate your perspective having a gay brother. One of the things I think you pointed out that I think is crucial is that members of the church really need to be around people who are different than them and who don't fit in the box before they, and I think most of humanity for that matter, really grasp what it's like to have to deal with those kinds of challenges. And so, again, I appreciate your perspective. I want to wrap up. I want to ask you one last question, which is, you know, if there's something else that you think would would add to this discussion and be helpful to listeners in terms of some nuanced view you hold that people might be surprised to hear, or if you've got any other kinds of advice for someone who's having a hard time, just a chance for you to give any last thoughts uh, as we kind of wrap up.
1: Yeah, um I just want to take a second and talk about transgender issues. Um, I've talked about this a little bit, um, especially when Bruce Jenner thing came out and, you know, there was some Mormon discussion about it. And I'm looking at it and I'm just I'm really feeling like we're reacting to this in a very emotional way and that we're making the same mistakes that we did, you know, with homosexuality or blacks or whatever. And that um, I really think that after, you know, 20 years from now, when gay marriage kind of, gay civil marriage becomes kind of just a normal thing, that this will kind of be the next frontier. And like homosexuality 100 years ago, transgender now, it's just not talked about. It doesn't have a face. We never talk about it. It doesn't, you know, like it doesn't happen. And I really feel like in the next 20 years that this is going to be something that we're really going to have to redefine our doctrine. So, um, like, it took a long time, for example, for the church to be able to say that, yes, physiologically people can be born, you know, with homosexual impulses, even though it's wrong to act on those impulses. It took us a long time to say that because we used to say that God would never do that because that goes against the natural order of things. But now we're coming to this place where, like we were talking about before, where it makes sense that, our bodies are kind of messed up. You know, C.S. Lewis says we're the children of God and we're put into these messed up bodies and God says, okay, let's see what you make of this. And our physical bodies are all different and we're all physically imperfect in some way. Our minds are all different. You know, as a youth, you think that everyone is normal. And as you get older, you realize that, you know, we all have a couple screws loose somewhere, some more than others. And, um, It just doesn't make any, it doesn't make sense, doesn't it make sense that in this world where there are no absolutes, that our sexuality would not be perfect either, that we have natural tendencies that we must overcome through love and less animalistic urges. And that, to me, makes sense. So... We already know, like right now, um, a sex change is instant communica- excommunication in the church. And we already know that scientifically, though, there have been cases where we know a person was born with certain genitalia, and their DNA says they are of the opposite gender, and their hormones got all messed up in utero and all that. So I just think it's one of those things where religion hasn't caught up with science. Yet, and if this happens, we need to doctrinally be able to account for it, even if it is on a case by case basis or with your bishop or whatever. And, you know, even if I'm wrong, let's say that God chose that the one perfect absolute in this world would that would be that everyone's sex organs matched up with their spirit and everyone knew what gender they were, which some people believe. Let's assume that that's true, which I don't think that's even true, but even if that was true, I just I just don't see, you know, we we look down on people, you know, like Bruce Jenner, that they're so wrong. And and to me, the bigger picture here is that what matters in the Mormon religion, when we talk about judgment, whenever we talk about judgment in Sunday school is did you live what you know, knew to be true? And so Bruce Jenner believes 100 percent that he is a woman. He hid it. He lied. He was ashamed of it. And in the last ditch ditch effort in his life, You know, just using him as an example, since, you know, we all kind of started to talk about it, he decided to live an honest and courageous life, decides to have a sex change, come out as a woman, even though he would know there'd be a lot of negative feedback and drama, and it would probably be easier just to die as famous Bruce Jenner. And if we Mormons truly believe that we are judged based on what we know and what we did with that knowledge, can we truly, truly judge him you know, perhaps he made a bad choice. Perhaps he's unstable. But it is also possible that based on what he knows, he's some kind of a moral courage hero who did more with what he knew than, you know, you and I do with what we know. And so not only do I think that science is going to have to force us, is going to force us to deal with this issue religiously. um I also believe that, you know, we're just so easy. We're just so quick to judge you know, someone's homosexual, they're in a homosexual relationship, someone has a sex change, um, someone's doing this or that, and we instantly judge them and say, you know, they're going to hell, if only they knew the truth, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, to me, how I read gospel doctrine and how I read, you know, the kingdoms and people being able to receive truth and ordinances in the next life, that's just not how I see it. And I think that we're just really hurting ourselves and the church when we start talking about whole groups of people, you know, being sinners and being wrong. And, and so for me personally, I think that we're going to have to um, allow I my prediction is that we're going to allow on a case by case basis, you know, with your Bishop or, or whatever um, when it comes to issues of sex change and that I just, in this world where there's no absolutes, I find it hard to believe that, in the whole history of the world with all the hormones and stuff that goes on, you know, when you're in uterus or whatever, that everybody's sex organs perfectly matches up with, with their spirit. And we already know that genetically that doesn't happen all the time. And, and maybe that's the next frontier. And even if I'm wrong, at least, at least we need to be not so judgy, you know, and, and that goes for Mormons every, you know, everywhere with everything. But, um, I just I just think the more we just say we just act emotionally based on our own beliefs and just judge people um the more we lose people who say you know I really don't I really don't believe with that or they know someone who's gen- transgender or for me I know someone who's gay and so now it's hurting my feelings or whatever and we just have to be very careful we have to allow room for the doctrine to grow and we also have to allow room to say You know, maybe he's doing the best with what he knows. I'm i going to reserve judgment. And I think if we acted like that in general, it would be a lot easier to go through the trials that we're going to have to go through as a church without losing so many people because we act so stupid.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I think, you know, this idea of transgender, once we really tackle this issue, I think it's going to have ramifications for the proclamation on the to the world, you know, the family of proclamation to the world. It it also, too, I think it's going to force us as a people to do something really good, which is to recognize that all these exceptions to the rule are their own thing. So, for instance, I think if you were to ask most Latter-day Saints today what they think of, say, homosexuality and transgenderism, I bet most Latter-day Saints would lump those two together, like they're like they're both like different expressions of the same genetic issue, or the same um, cultural issue, or experiential issue. When in reality, they're probably, as far as I'm concerned, two completely unrelated issues that that happen separately from themselves. That somebody could be transgendered, somebody could be gay, and maybe out there somewhere is some gay person who's also transgendered. Um, those things happen, and so as we kind of tackle this. Things like the proclamation to the world, which poses all these absolutes. Not that we have to change the wording necessarily, but we're certainly going to have to change our interpretation of it, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're just going to have to be better at accepting that, um, yes, there's this perfect doctrine that we're trying to attain and that, that we can read about or whatever. But we have to be better that living a righteous life looks different for different people, you know? I have a Mormon friend who really found God through her yoga practice. Good for you. You know, that's not unusual. Some people make fun of her in the church. And why should that be, you know? And then, you know, there's the depressed person who maybe can do very little, but that's all that she can do. Or the bipolar person who, you know, sometimes the body just takes over and their spirit doesn't have a lot of control there. And so we can't judge that. Or the person who truly believes that they're a woman and that to be honest and living an honest life, means to be a woman and yet they were born a man or you know they have these tendencies so maybe this push to get married doesn't fit them and so we don't have to let go of the perfect doctrine but we have to leave room that on this earth with our imperfect bodies our imperfect sex impulses our imperfect minds we have to allow room for everyone to find their place in the church and feel like like they belong there or else you know we're losing Everyone who doesn't, you know, fit the classic cookie cutter mold, which we're already seeing, and we just have to get better at that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's finish up. You, uh, you've got a little group going similar to what we're doing out here in St. George, where we're having Latter-day Saints who are wanting to be able to find a community, to talk to people who have gone through these faith transitions, to have, uh, to have some people to talk to and to lean on. You're doing the same thing where you're at. Tell us a little bit about, uh, where that is and how people can reach you so that if, uh, somebody lives, uh, 50 miles from you and wants to take part, they'd know who to contact.
1: Sure. So I live in Boise and I, um, one of your I think he was originally on a podcast and then started doing some guest He was guest interviews with you. Um, John Young also lives in Boise. And we're just trying to get a group together because anyone who's either in a faith crisis or been in a faith crisis Whenever you go to Sunday school, you know, you feel like, you know, you're the only one who wants to talk about these things. For example, the other day in church, someone brought up intelligences and I could spend hours talking about, you know, really pulling apart what that really means. And, you know, the brethren have gone back and forth on what that term intelligences means. And, um, you know, I want to talk about it. I want to see what other people think about it. I want to reframe and see what that you know and each opinion changes kind of the metaphysical nature of the universe and all that stuff and i want to talk about so um we wanted to just get together a group of people where we were just it was just an open place and we're able to you know talk about concerns that people have and you can see how other people have dealt with it talk about things that really interest you that you know really you know sunday school is really not the place for it but you want to have a safe place to be able to talk and think and research about things and and really just get a community together of, of people who, um, you know, have, have been in a faith crisis or at least, you know, have grappled with some of these bigger issues and want to find people who are also, you know, wrestling with these things. So if you live around the Boise area, um, you can go ahead. I'm sure Bill, when you post this interview, you'll post my information and go ahead and just give me an email. And, and if you live anywhere around me, I'd love to meet you and, and, um, you know, I'll have you be involved in this and we're trying to get some stuff going here in Boise so if you're near me um, email me and I'd love to hear from you
0: yeah and I'll just put a good word in for you guys uh, knowing Brittany Hartley knowing John Young uh, you'd be in good hands with uh, with a couple of good people who want have been through this also are trying to lead with faith and I think you guys are both doing so magnificently uh, appreciate uh, your perspective today Brittany I will put that information up on the interview and uh, God bless you and thank you so much for being on again
1: yeah thank you. it was a pleasure and thanks for all you do Bill Thank mm-hmm. you.